Hello, and thank you for downloading this week's episode of Power Bombs and Potables on the Podcast Potables Network, brought to you by the Andrew Boss team at Berkshire Hathaway. Please make sure to subscribe to the podcast, leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and untapped at Process Potables. On Twitter, you can follow Powerbombs and Potables at PowerbombsPPN. For news, info on breweries we've worked with, and so much more, make sure to check out ProcessPotables.com. On this week's episode, WrestleMania has officially gone by, so now we start the plans going forward for the WWE on both brands. NXT has a very, very interesting show, and AEW begins their TNT Championship Tournament. We discuss that, the news, and so much more on this week's edition of Powerbombs and Potables. Welcome to this week's edition of Power Bombs and Potables. I'm Corey Oates here on the Podcast Potables Network. Despite the fact that WrestleMania has already come and gone, and you'd think that the WWE was going to take a break, far from it. So we're going to get right into the news of things that are going on this week in the world of professional wrestling. This Tuesday night, CM Punk returns to WWE backstage. Punk, who's never outspoken, I'm sure will have lots to say uh, on this week. When he makes his first return to the show in close to two months with empty arena wrestling, WrestleMania and the WWE still moving forward with operations with COVID going on. I'm sure he's going to have plenty of unpopular things to say about the WWE, which will make this must see TV on Tuesday night. WWE is broadcasting this and hyping it up as Edge will be the guest on this show. They stopped talking about CM Punk quite a few months ago. I wonder why that was. It was announced Tuesday that Bianca Belair was officially moved up to the Monday Night Raw roster. In uh, other roster moves, the Forgotten Sons were called up to the SmackDown roster. I'll touch more later on both of those when we get to the respective show recaps. On Thursday, the Royal Farms Arena in Baltimore announced that the 2020 Money in the Bank pay-per-view has been canceled due to the coronavirus pandemic. Refunds have been offered to those who had previously purchased tickets, but that's not going to stop the WWE, obviously, from putting on this pay-per-view. Sunday, March the 10th, from, I'm assuming, what's going to be the Performance Center in Orlando, Florida. The matches will be presented, I'm sure, not the way that they did this past Wednesday night on NXT in the ladder match forms that they are, compared to this past weekend's WrestleMania ladder match. This coming Friday on SmackDown, in Money in the Bank qualifying matches, we're going to see Daniel Bryan take on Cesaro, as well as Naomi versus Dana Brooke. This Wednesday night, we will see Jake Hager versus John Moxley for the AEW World Title in an empty arena, no holds barred match. It's been announced that Jim Ross will return to commentate this match. As you know, AEW has Ross staying at home because he is in the high-risk group during the coronavirus pandemic. Tony Schiavone has been traveling from Marietta, Georgia, to the taping locations in recent weeks to do the play-by-play -play with a rotating color commentator by his side. It should also be noted that Jerry the King Lawler will be returning to the Raw announce desk this coming Monday night when Raw returns live on USA. Yes, the WWE has announced that they are moving back to a live format for all of their shows, Monday Night Raw, NXT, and Friday Night SmackDown starting this coming week, which is interesting after the state of Florida has put into full effect the shutdown unless you're an essential business. In an interview this week, Cody Rhodes commented on the comparisons of the Brody Lee character to Vince McMahon, and here's some of what he had to say. When it comes to some of the parallels between Brody's style of leadership, there are a lot of unique parallels, but I don't think it's particularly a spoof of Vince McMahon. Maybe it's because we'll see how it develops in the next few weeks. I think Brody just has a very powerful boss, very Animal Kingdom kind of social Darwinism type approach to the Dark Order, and I think that falls in line with perhaps some of Vince's quirks. 
but it's not an outright spoof of the legendary Mr. McMahon. Not outright. The WWE put out a press release to state that a non-on-screen employee has tested positive for COVID-19. The release stated, A WWE employee has tested positive for COVID-19. We believe that this matter is low risk to the WWE talent and staff, as the individual and a roommate became symptomatic in the days following exposure of, to two people working in acute healthcare on the evening of March 26th after WWE's TV production on a closed set was already complete. The employee had no contact with anyone from WWE since being exposed to those two individuals. They are doing well and have made a complete recovery. On Friday, big news, Dash and Dawson, the revival, finally received their releases from WWE, which in the long term, I'm not really sure how it works out better for them. If you remember a few months back, Dash Wilder had an injury where the WWE added about 10 weeks onto his contract, would have been, which would have been tacked on to the end of their deals. Now, of course, when they're released, they have to adhere to the 90-day no-compete clause uh, as opposed to just being free to go wherever if their contracts had indeed expired. However, having to adhere to that 90-day no-compete clause is going to be longer than the 70 days that would have been tacked on to Dash Wilder's contract. We obviously don't know when their contract specifically would have been up, but you got to assume that this release was definitely planned in advance so that they would not be able to show up at Double or Nothing in Las Vegas Memorial Day weekend. They've also recently moved forward with setting themselves up for the future. Dash Wilder will now be going by the name Cash Wheeler, and Scott Dawson will be going by the name of Dax Harwood. And the team will be going by FTR, which is what they've had on their gear for well over a year now, which is a smart move by them. They were able to copyright that and several other things. So I expect to see these guys pop up on AEW around Labor Day just in time for their annual show that weekend. I personally also think that you're going to see them hit some indies over the summer and maybe even get a guest spot with Jim Cornette that they've been trying to get for quite some time with him as their manager. Due to not being able to leave the country, it was announced by NXT General Manager William Regal that the NXT Cruiserweight Champion Jordan Devlin will be stripped of the title and they will be holding a tournament to crown a new champion. The Group A wrestlers were announced on Sunday. Those wrestlers are Kushida. Drake Maverick, Tony Nese, and Jake Atlas. In some big news wrestling related, we have talks about Ronda Rousey and why she claims she will not return to the WWE full time. On the latest episode of Wild Ride with Steve O, his podcast, Rousey talked about working for WWE and the type of schedule that she had while she was on the road. She quote said, I love the WWE. I had such a great time. I love all the girls in the locker room. Ronda said, running out there and having fake fights for fun is just the best thing. I love choreography. I love acting. I love theater, live theater, and some sort of the last forms of theater. But I was basically doing part-time, and I was away from home 200 days out of the year. And when I did get home, I was so sleep-deprived because you just don't have time to lay down. Rousey goes on to say that she learned that she had a broken vertebrae in her lower back prior to signing with the WWE during her medical exams. So when she was home, she'd have to be laying down with a heating pad on her back and a Tempur-Pedic pillow under her neck the whole time. She would go on to say, if I had, she would go on to say, if I did all the live shows, I was only home a day and a half a week. It was just not worth it for my family because we were eliminating all of our expenses and living this lifestyle. We didn't need it. We didn't need the money, Rhonda continued. So it's just like, what am I doing it for if I'm not being able to spend my time and energy on my family, but instead spending my time and energy on a bunch of fucking ungrateful fans that don't even appreciate me. I love performing. I love the girls. I love being out there. But in the end of the day, I was just like, fuck these fans, dude. My family loves me and they appreciate me. And I want all my energy to go into them. So that's where my decision was at the end of the day. It's like, hey, girls, love what you're doing. I'm going to try and take all my momentum and push you guys as far as I can. Fly, little birds, fly. I'm going fucking home. And that was basically it. For more great discussion on this, I suggest taking the time to listen to the Busted Open podcast from this past Saturday where Mark Henry, WWE Hall of Famer, who also knows a lot about coming in from the outside sports realm into WWE and having to deal with the fans and his take on this. 
Great listen, and it's about 35 minutes long. Bill Goldberg finally broke his uh, silence about what actually went down going into WrestleMania and the reason why he ended up dropping the Universal title to Braun Strowman. During an appearance on the CarCast podcast, Goldberg mentioned that as far as he knew, the Roman Reigns match was still a go up until the final moments before the show aired. He explains that he doesn't know why WWE didn't make the switch earlier, only that he believes that they were too invested in the match and that Reigns figured he could still make the match work. Literally, until the 23rd hour, it was still a possibility that he and I were going to wrestle, Goldberg said. He added, I think what happened was somebody was sick and Roman had heard about it. They only had the flu, just the facts that someone was sick under those circumstances, and in the end of the day, he just couldn't do it. Goldberg gave Roman props for doing everything he could in his power to try and make it happen, but the switch was made. What's crazy is that even after Goldberg wrestled Strowman and lost the Universal title, WWE thinking they could still do the match between Reigns and Goldberg in time to get it onto the WrestleMania pay-per-view. He notes, I did the match with Braun, and then it was possible I could wrestle Roman again before the fifth, but that obviously fell through. He said WWE called him hoping he could come back and wrestle a second time, even though his commitments to WWE had been fulfilled. He added, you've seen me go through this stuff. Could you imagine me being done on Friday? My obligations were complete for the year. My second match was already wrestled, so I was literally done. So I come back here on Friday, jump on the tractor, eat as many bonbons and drink as many Cokes, and I don't go to the gym for five days, and then I get a phone call in the middle of the week, like that's still a possibility. Which this helps explain the reason as to why he didn't make this match, because, well, quite frankly... He was done. He went home. And we know Goldberg, He, when he's in training mode, he trains. But when he doesn't train, he is just a regular guy. Can't blame him for that. Live his life up. And finally in the news, it was reported on Friday that Bobby Lashley, Corey Graves, and his real-life girlfriend Carmella tested positive for COVID-19. Though this has not been confirmed by the WWE, several sources out there have confirmed that this is indeed true. Yikes. We'll see how this goes going forward. And that's it for the news this week. And we start off our week with Monday Night Raw. We get a recap package of Drew versus Brock in the main event from Sunday night's part two of WrestleMania 36. And we recap and show that Brock Lesnar has lost the title and Drew McIntyre is now our champion to start this show. Asuka versus Liv Morgan in a one-on-one -on -one match. Eh, there wasn't really much to say about this match. Asuka wins with the Asuka lock. One thing that's of interesting note that they do point out is that this is still the most unpredictable Raw of the year, which usually makes sense. When you have people that travel from all over the world and they spend their whole weekend going to different wrestling shows, these are diehard fans and they get very passionate and very loud. But there's no crowd here. So we'll see how unpredictable this actually is. We have... Backstage promos from post-WrestleMania from Becky Lynch and Shayna, and courtesy of WWE.com, here's those comments. How good was Shayna tonight in your match? Look, she's incredible. I never underestimated her. I think she underestimated me. But the fact of the matter is that she's been a top-ranked cage fighter for 10 years straight. She, she's the longest combined women's NXT champion in history. Uh, her skill set is maybe maybe unmatched in what we have in in wwe today but the fact of the matter is is tonight was uh, a test of skill over heart and i've got the heart well what's next for you as the reigning raw women's champion well uh shane has a problem she thinks she has my number she certainly doesn't but uh if she has a problem with that finish tonight just tell her to not go missing she knows where to find me i'll be holding down the fort every single week Becky, congratulations again. Thank you. The thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. The thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. The thrill of victory. And for you, Becky, 
as you. The agony of my defeat. Which I guess coming out of that does confirm what me and Dan talked about on our post-WrestleMania show, that you're going to probably continue with Becky Lynch and Shayna Baszler going forward. So I guess the outcome of the Mania match doesn't really kill Shayna that much if they're going to eventually go with her. Now the ball's in WWE's court to make sure that that presentation continues to make her a viable threat to Becky's title. In a WrestleMania rematch, we get the Street Profits versus Austin Theory and Angel Garza. The first thing I noticed is Zelina Vega wearing her ring gear, looking all the way live as usual. But this to me says that we're going to see Bianca Belair at some point tonight after what happened at WrestleMania. The next thing I noticed, and I also noticed this at WrestleMania as well, is that Zelina Vega stands on the opposite corner of where her team is. Now, this isn't a normal thing. The only reason that she's doing this is because she's going to be on TV that way. You're going to be able to see her and her emotion that she's trying to do as she's coaching on her team. I'm sure that this is something that WWE has told her to do, but is also good for her because she's getting the TV time for the entire match. Now, Paul Heyman was the only other person that did this uh, since they have been shooting TV that way, so it makes more sense to me that this was definitely directive from Paul Heyman. Zelina Vega causes the DQ, and Bianca Belair, of course, hits, like I would assume, and puts Zelina Vega down in the ring. She says she's not the EST of NXT, but she's the EST of WWE, and challenges Zelina Vega to a one-on-one -on -one match. This match lasts about three minutes before that gets thrown out into a disqualification. Montez Ford then goes on to make this a three-on-three -three match. Bianca Belair gets the hot tag and hits the KOD over Zelina Vega for the win. As we discussed in the news, it is now official that Bianca Belair has been called up to the main roster on the Monday Night Raw brand. Uh, what concerns me is that she was never fully given her chance to main event like she should have in NXT. And she was also a heel. And they've been putting her with her husband, who is a part of the Tag Team Champions. Up next, we get a Lashley promo from post-WrestleMania. He states that he needs new management or a new wife, at which point Lana walks in and asks him and Charlie what they're talking about. Lashley, at this point, walks away. So now we have planted the seeds that these two, these two being Lana and Lashley, are going to already be working on splitting up. <sighs> Another wrestling marriage has once again failed. Aleister Black versus Apollo Crews. Now, this is a very interesting match. You wouldn't really think that anybody would want to talk about an Apollo Crews match, but here we are. Apollo Crews makes the silent move from the SmackDown roster to Raw, where his profile has been moved on WWE.com. This match goes for a full four TV segments. Now, Apollo hasn't had much time on Raw in several years, and he was able to really show off what he's capable of in this match, uh, in case people forgot what he did. Sidebar, I remember when he first came to NXT, and he was only there for a few weeks, maybe maybe three months before he was called up the night after WrestleMania a few years back, and they never did anything with him. He just kind of flustered and has jumped from show to show and pretty much been used in squash matches. And I feel that uh, a lot of that is because they were never established on who they are and what they're capable of. Back and forth, these two went in this match, and holy hell was this entertaining, between a guy they've had in high regards for several months, being Aleister Black, and someone who hasn't had the chance to prove himself, in Apollo Crews. Black finally hits the Black Mass and connects for the win, but this was a great television match between these two. Next up, Oni Lurkin and Danny Burch from NXT versus quote-unquote WWE's newest rising tag team. That's Cedric Alexander and Ricochet. This was a quick match to get Cedric Alexander and Ricochet over. Burch and Lurkin need to stay on NXT uh, because they're not gimmicky enough for this main roster. If there's one thing that we see, if you have the choice, if you're Vince McMahon from NXT over a just pure wrestling gritty team like Burch and Lurkin over the charismatic high flyer that is Ricochet, he's going to take Ricochet because he can do more entertainment with Ricochet. Next up, we go to a pre-tape promo from after WrestleMania with Kevin Owens in the backstage. And courtesy of WWE.com, here's what Kevin Owens had to say. 
yes, it was all worth it to finally have a WrestleMania moment that I can be proud of. But now that that's done, it's time for me to, to refocus and move on to bigger and better things. But what is that? Right? I used to call myself a prize fighter. Maybe it's time for me to go back to that. Or maybe there's more people in WWE like Seth who deserve a stunner or two. The point is, no matter what I do from here on out, the message and the mentality remain the same. I am here to stay and I will just keep fighting because this is the Kevin Owens show. So I don't really know what's going to come out of that. They don't really establish a direction for him going forward, but I feel that it also kind of sets him up that he could be going heel or could be staying babyface. I like the idea of them doing that, keeping him bland right now in a situation where they're working with a very thin roster. Up next, Seth Rollins versus Denzel Desjardins from NXT. An enhancement match to say the least. Seth Rollins wins with the stomp in about 90 seconds. Now, what made this entertaining? Seth Rollins walked out to the ring slow, not injured, but just broken down. The emotion that he was given. And after this match, he grabs his jacket and he slowly walks back up the ramp and doesn't say a word. I like the direction of this because now he is a broken man. And we'll see what's going to happen with his character. I feel that we're going to get even darker down the hole with Seth Rollins in the coming weeks. Here's where we find out that Nia Jax is making her return right after this commercial break. No surprise. I mean, let's be real. Even if this was in front of a crowd, no one would have really cared if Nia Jax made a return. Here's a girl who everybody has pinned her success and even getting onto this roster due to her relationship to The Rock. This girl has done nothing in her NXT run except a match that I kind of enjoyed back at NXT London several years ago against Bayley. Since she came to the main roster, she has cost Becky Lynch uh, a match with Ronda Rousey at Survivor Series. She was picked on by a girl over a foot shorter than her and took her title as a babyface at WrestleMania and has literally done nothing that anybody has ever fucking cared about. Either way, we get Nia Jax versus Deanna Perrazzo here. Now, I've been a fan of Deanna Perrazzo for years. She came onto my radar back from Ring of Honor a few years ago, and now she's in NXT. Still not fully hitting her stride yet, but I chalk that up to the fact that they have so many women under contract down there that she'll eventually get her chance. Unfortunately, this match airs on the same TV channel that NXT does on Wednesday nights, and Jax ran over her like a jobber. I don't really see the positive in this match. She hits her with a Samoan drop and a nasty drop DDT for the win. Now, this was indeed Paige's old finish, which Paige went on her Twitter later that night and stated, you never use another person's finishing move unless it's given to you. I gave it to Nia Jax and she just killed it. I have chills. Proud moment. So my thought going forward is that if you do not have Shayna Baszler continue with Becky Lynch, which it seems that they're going to, that Nia Jax is going to just be the one waiting in the wings. I'm not thrilled about that. I'm not happy about that. I guess maybe you'll finally get a payoff from when she cost her that match several years ago by breaking her nose, but that is yet to be seen. We get to our final portion of Raw that I want to speak about, and this was interesting to say the least. We go live, well, not live per se, but right after the WrestleMania main event goes off the air, in quotes, between Brock Lesnar and Drew McIntyre, approximately 20 minutes later, Drew McIntyre comes back out to the ring. He thanks Paul Heyman, and right when he starts to talk, the Big Show's music hits, and Big Show drags a referee out to the ring with him. Well, guess Big Show's now a heel again. Show tells him that this is a big man's world and he is not a giant. He challenges Drew to a match right now for the championship. Drew says he's not going to face him tonight as he just finished defeating Brock Lesnar. Big Show keeps taunting him trying to goat him into a title match. Drew says there's nothing you can do to convince me to fight you. So naturally, Big Show, a 7'4 giant, 
slaps him across the face because that's what a man would do trying to fight another man is slap him. That says WWE all over it. Well, he slaps him and the match is on. WWE title on the line, Big Show versus Drew McIntyre. Can we talk about how this is 20 minutes after WrestleMania goes off the air and allegedly Byron Saxon and Tom Phillips are still sitting ringside? I think a cooler aspect to this would have been for them to at least dub in audio live. Well, again, quote unquote live, being that this was a pre-tape from the announcers in the arena from Raw to announce this. That's just me. I feel it adds a little more realism to this scenario. This way, it makes it seem like they had no idea this was even going to have happened when they started playing the VTR of what happened after the show went off the air. This was happening after they left. Wrestling's supposed to be mindless, so I don't like it when things like this stick out so bad to me that I have to point them out. This match was actually better than the title match that we saw this past Sunday. This match got a little bit of time too. So the actual main event from WrestleMania doesn't air on WrestleMania. It in fact airs here in the main event position of Monday Night Raw. Big Show dominates most of this match, hits a Vader bomb, open-handed chops to the chest of Drew, several of them. Uh, eventually Drew ducks and chops and slams the Big Show, which was very impressive, center of the ring for a near fall. Show's under 400 pounds these days, but they're still trying to drive home that he is playing uh, the giant here, and we're still trying to bill him as well over 400 pounds. Big Show hits a choke slam, and we get a kick out from Drew at two and three quarters. These two were really, really having a solid story that they were telling between still the new champion who has just been in a quote-unquote war with Brock Lesnar against this fresh giant who we haven't seen in several months. Big Show at this point goes for the weapon of mass destruction, Drew ducks for the Claymore and retains the title. This match was wonderful. Nothing to write home about, but if you compare it to the two moves that were the duration of that four-minute title match to close out WrestleMania Sunday, this was indeed a masterpiece. Now, what's going to happen with Raw going forward? Well, we've discussed in the news that WWE has announced that they are going back live starting this Monday night at 8 p.m., all right, I'm recording this a couple of days before I'm going to actually record the podcast. It is 6.53 p.m. Wednesday night, April the 8th. Uh, so AEW goes on at 8 p.m. I wanted to make sure that I got this on before the actual broadcast airs. So I wanted to quick run over the bracket for the TNT Championship Tournament. On the quarterfinals, which start this week, uh, we have Cody versus Sean Spears. We have Sammy Guevara versus Darby Allen. On the other side of the bracket, we have the natural Dustin Rhodes versus Superbad Kip Sabian. And on then the final match, Murderhawk Lance Archer versus Colt Cabana. So my thoughts on this are going to be one. Uh, I'm not quite sure where you start with this. So Cody, Sean Spears. I feel that this already kind of has the redemption moment. You can maybe go with Sean Spears here. And give Sean Spears an actual opportunity to uh, advance going further and maybe put the, not even the title on him. Um, my problem is when you get to the bottom bracket, I feel that Sammy Guevara is on such a roll that Sammy Guevara should be the one that beats Darby Allen. Natural match with him and Cody in a rematch of the very first match on the first episode of Dynamite. But after last week's episode, uh, Darby Allen seems like him and Cody are bound to have a match here in this tournament. So I don't know which direction you can go there. I flip over to the other side and I don't have any question about these two matches. I think Dustin Rhodes defeats Kip Sabian and I feel that Lance Archer will defeat Colt Cabana. Now, switching back over to the other side of what I was saying prior, um, I feel that naturally... Sammy Guevara is going to have to beat Darby Allen here. You go Cody over Sean Spears. So now your semifinals are set as Cody versus Sammy Guevara. And you got Dustin versus Lance Archer. Now you could easily use this match where Lance Archer gets disqualified somehow. Because he just beats the living hell out of Dustin Rhodes somehow. Or 
my point is, I feel that Cody in that second round somehow loses this match to Sammy Guevara because of interference from Lance Archer, which will now set up those two. Remember, Cody cannot go for the AEW world title. So this is his opportunity at getting a title. But I still feel that Sammy Guevara will somehow win that match with help from Lance Archer. In your, which I also feel that because of that, Lance Archer will also be eliminated from the tournament. So then you get Dustin versus Sammy in the finals. And Sammy Guevara wins the title from here. That is just the way I think. So I think that, again, the run over the bracket, Cody over Spears, Sammy over Darby, Dustin over Kip, and then Archer over Cabana. Then in the semifinals, you'll see Sammy over Cody and Dustin over Archer. And then in your finals, Sammy Guevara will defeat Dustin Rhodes. Uh, We will see what happens tonight. I don't even know how many matches we have set for Dynamite from this tournament, uh, but we'll see how I do. Well, it's Sunday night that I am recording this, and I have made sure to put in my original brackets, which were timestamped from Wednesday before AEW went on the air. We'll see how that played out this week. AEW opens with a promo from Jake the Snake Roberts, and courtesy of All Elite Wrestling, here's some of what Jake had to say. Jake, talk, kid, God. Here we are again, folks. My history will not be my destiny. Famous words quoted by me. <laughs> Let me ask you a simple question. Would you stand in front of a train that was barreling down that track. Would you hop on that track and sit there? Here's one. Would you jump out of an airplane without a parachute? Or do you stand in the ring and look at Lance Archer and think you've got a prayer of winning? See, all three things, you wind up in the same position done you step in the ring with lance archer and it is done quit playing the game quit wishing you see what happened to poor marco and i know what happened to you marco nobody else wanted it and you saw that as an opportunity to prove to everybody you thought that you were willing and you were a man marco sometimes it's better to be thoughtful than to speak up or take action and erase all doubt. You were an idiot. Now, Cody, please don't let this one slip away from you. I got a funny feeling about this one. I'm getting something through here that says you just might get beat by Sean Spears. That surprised everybody but me. See, I'm looking for you to do that, Cody. Let it get away from you. You know, banana peel slipped. Oh, I didn't mean for that to happen. So you don't have to face us. Cody, are you a man or a mouse? Squeak up. Tell me. Once again, Jake the Snake with a stellar promo. He is so good on the mic. Always has been and always will be. And a great way to continue driving home this that is only going to eventually come to pass between Cody and Lance Archer. We open uh, the show Jericho, Le Champion, and Tony Schiavone on the commentary tonight. We go right into Lance Archer versus a jobber who is named as Alan Angels. They didn't really give him a lower third because there wasn't even enough time. Archer quick wins with the blackout, which is a reverse razor's edge when you pick him up with the double arms into a front slam. This thing looks great. We'll see how impressive it looks when he's not facing people like Alan Angels and Marco Stunt. Up next, we get something that I'm going to be very happy to talk about. Something that I wouldn't have thought that I would be talking about here is a Britt Baker match. Dr. Britt Baker versus Hikaru Shida. Shida has been the number one contender for several weeks now. But it's obviously going to be a while before she gets the title match with Nyla Rose due to the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. Not to mention, AEW is taped uh, through May. Or maybe not all the way through May, but through a couple weeks into May. So who knows what they actually have recorded at this point in time. Now, I'm going to say this. This is the first Britt Baker match that I've seen since she's done this heel turn that I can remember. 
Now, I know that she's done some stuff on AEW Dark, but I don't really count that. We're talking main dynamite. She's only really come out and done promos and announcing work, and you could see that she has a completely different aura about herself now that she has made this heel turn. She ran most of the offense in this match. Now, I'm going to you know, say that she's got so much potential, Britt Baker does, to be a star, but these things don't necessarily happen overnight. Uh, there was some sloppy spots in this match. Uh, she went for a running boot in the corner, and it didn't connect at all. Uh, but she's got to work on her timing. She's got to get better with that, and that's all repetition. The unfortunate thing is working once a week, if she works every week, isn't going to get her there. She's got to find ways to get more reps in because she could be a star, and I, I, I wholeheartedly believe that. I feel that she should she should have been the person in the place that they gave Riho to be the first AEW Women's Champion. Not saying that she has to be the greatest wrestler in the world. She just needed to be the face of the company. That was where they were starting things off and going forward to have a very attractive, young, somebody that wasn't from WWE, which Rio wasn't either, but somebody that at least has an American fan base that has been on WWE TV and has somebody that can make it to all of their tapings. She should have been the babyface. They dropped the ball with that. They have to do this reset with the heel turn. Now, there's a spot here where Sheeta kicks Britt Baker right in the nose and it starts to bleed pretty bad. Now, the mandible claw spot goes as she's bleeding and referee Paul Turner puts on gloves, which is the protocol in most wrestling these days. And especially with this virus going on, you don't want any of that stuff. But she asked Paul Turner for one of his gloves before she puts her hand in Sheeta's mouth for the mandible claw. Very cool spot, very with the times, and I appreciated that a lot. But as I was stating, she took this kick and there was blood all down her mouth. Uh, you could just tell by the camera angles they were shooting from this that this shot is going to be just like the Stone Cold Bret Hart shot from WrestleMania 13 when Austin reaches up his head and the blood just runs down. They made shirts and all that stuff uh, from that. Uh, and as a matter of fact, AEW already made a shirt with her bloody face on it, kiss inspired. Mind you, which Chris Jericho in this match alone did a Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons impersonation in it. So I, I was popping for that. But it is already the number one seller on Pro Wrestling Tees. Need I say any more? Sheeta won with a cool looking drop. She had Brent on her shoulders and stood on the second rope and then pretty much just dropped her on entire body across the turnbuckle and then hit a shining wizard for the win. This was a great women's match. We go to a pre-tape from Kenny Omega's trailer, and this is where this show goes downhill. I have said before that I don't hate Kenny Omega, but I don't love Kenny Omega. Kenny Omega has never really done anything to make me love him, and purely the fact that he is in this trailer with Michael Nakazawa is enough for me to want to hit fast forward, but because I have to bring this program to you, I was forced to to watch this. They're in this trailer and they discuss that they're such good friends. Nakazawa thinks that they should be called best friends. At this point, Orange Cassidy then walks out of a bathroom. Trent and Chuck Taylor walk into this trailer. And now we have a battle for who's better best friends tonight between Nakazawa and Omega versus the best friends who have to be, I will say, AEW's MVPs. They are at every single show in some way, shape, or fashion, there has not been anything that has kept them from being there. And I'm sure that the management appreciates that. Not even knowing the results of this match, though, I can say that I guarantee that Michael Nakazawa is going to take the pin in this match. At this point, there is an awesome package for John Moxley versus Jake Hager. Jake Hager states that he is a prize fighter. He only fights for his family to make more money, and that's the reason why he is looking to win the AEW world title. They spotlight John Moxley's run so far for the title in AEW. Uh, just watching this package makes me think that Jake Hager needs to win this match. Let's put it this way. He is a legitimate MMA fighter. He had a previously scheduled MMA fight for Bellator on May 9th, and he is undefeated in MMA currently. He's also undefeated in AEW. You kill this man's legitimacy if he doesn't walk out with the title. 
Now, they say that this match is going to be no holds barred and in an empty arena, which in the news we discussed will indeed be happening this coming Wednesday night with Jim Ross on the commentary. I don't see how anyone wins in this. John Moxley has been undefeated since coming into AEW. Also, he has only defended the belt once, maybe twice on TV since winning it back at February 29th's Revolution pay-per-view, and it's not time for him to lose it yet. So I'm in this weird situation where I don't see how either of these outcomes do good for the other person. Now, being the fact that AEW has taped their stuff for several months, you could put the belt on Hager and then find a way later down the line to get it back onto Moxley. But I feel that once again, we found a wrestling program that has backed themselves into a corner that they just don't need to be in. Next up, Kenny Omega, Michael Nakazawa versus Best Friends. So where do I start with this? Nakazawa is absolutely horrible. They had him break out the baby oil, and Trent, who, as great of a wrestler he is, had to play along with this clown by chopping him and make it as unbelievable as possible that baby oil is causing his chops to just slide right off of Nakazawa's chest with absolutely no effect. Come on. Now, after three chops, there's an obvious edit here. Because we cut to a spot where now Trent is on the mat and Nakazawa is tagging in Omega from the ground as well. So, like, there's a reason that this guy has not been used on TV except for, you know, that time that Pac kidnapped him. I'm all for interesting gimmicks. They're all different, but there's no place on national television for a company that is owned by a billionaire trying to be the alternative as well as get those lapsed fans back for someone changing the channel that's going to stop on this and see, wow, this is what wrestling has become. And they're going to change that channel and probably never turn back to it again. Michael Nakazawa is horrible. There is no place for him on this program. He needs to never return again. The match continues and, well, wouldn't you guess it, Nakazawa takes his man thong off and places it on his arm like Santino would with a sock and called it a cobra. It is referred to as the, quote, venom arm. What the fuck is this shit? Not only for the sake of my own selfish personal sanity do I need this quarantine to end, but for the sanity of my wrestling so that I can get Hangman Page back on the TV each week. Because Michael Nakazawa, this match was sloppy, goofy, and horrible. This is the worst Trent match, the worst Omega match that I've seen in AEW so far. The best part about this match was on commentary when Chris Jericho stated that he hopes that this is the last that we see of Nakazawa. Please, if we could make that happen. If this match went 12 minutes, it went 12 minutes too long. And like I assumed, Michael Nakazawa took the pin in this. So who wins in this? We're just trying to fill TV time. At this point, we should be airing old dark matches, if that's what we're going to get. Because that was cringeworthy to watch on my TV. Up next, we get a Matt Hardy promo where he challenges Chris Jericho to the elite deletion match. So I'm guessing this is another type of final deletion S match that they will be recording on the Hardy compound over the next couple of weeks to then eventually put on the TV at some point in time. Obviously, Jericho has not accepted this match yet, but you can assume that that's the direction that they're going. Lee Johnson versus Brody Lee in another squash match for Brody Lee. Brody Lee wins with a huge lariat. Nothing more to speak about that. Up next is our main event, and it is Sean Spears versus Cody in our first bracket match of the AEW TNT Championship Tournament. This match lacked the emotion that their match last summer had. Now, Cody took a vertical suplex onto a guardrail that was positioned up by the ring apron on an angle. Uh, so part of me says, well, they're fighting for a chance for the TNT title. But the other part of me says, why would you put your body at risk for a TV match in front of 10 other wrestlers as your audience? Come up with something else to save yourself. So naturally, as I'm saying this and watching this on my TV, about five minutes later, Cody takes the equivalent of the attitude adjustment from Sean Spears from inside the ring to the outside through a table. Again, why? 
So after all that, Cody still beats the 10 count. And remember, this is for the first round of a tournament match for a title on TV. This stuff is pushing it for a pay-per-view match, let alone a TV match. Cody fires up, hits two crossroads, which then Spears kicks out of. So now Cody puts on the figure four, and within 20 seconds, Sean Spears gets his shoulders pinned to the mat in a figure four. Okay. This match was Crash TV for the sake of Crash TV. I hated this. Cody kills any legitimacy that they could have given Spears in this match because Spears put him through a guardrail and a table and he can't even get the job done with a 10 count. Spears, in return, kills Cody's finisher because he kicks out of it on TV. This wasn't even a pay-per-view match. I hated this. So who wins here? Nobody. Absolute garbage. If there was one reason to watch every minute of this show which I did, was for Chris Jericho's commentary. Very Bobby Heenan-esque, as he has legitimate credibility. Uh, so the things that he says, you believe, uh, but he also adds the commentary and overdramatic anger when babyfaces do things that Bobby Heenan would that you used to love with the dynamic of him and Gorilla Monsoon or Vince McMahon back in the day. Him and Tony also have a natural chemistry together, so I'm hoping in the coming weeks at least we're going to get more of the pairing of Tony Schiavone and Chris Jericho on these taped shows. So we move on to NXT at this point. NXT, the show that I watch after AEW every week, opens with a number one contender's ladder match for the NXT women's title. Io Shirai versus Tegan Knox versus Chelsea Green versus Mia Yim versus Dakota Kai with Raquel Gonzalez versus Candice LeRae. Now the first thing that happens in this match is they do a spot where all the girls go down except for Dakota Kai. Dakota Kai at this point calls Gonzalez to bring her a ladder. I loved this because I've been very critical of the Dakota Kai Raquel Gonzalez team, but this works for me. You take Raquel Gonzalez and she, the giant of the two, is taking the orders from Dakota Kai. This is what this always should be. Now, as she's walking to the ring with the ladder, Candice LeRae hits her with a dropkick and takes her out of the match for a while. Great call. I love this. About five minutes into this match, we hit a commercial and I think to myself as we went to break, that unlike WrestleMania, which I just watched this past weekend, here's another ladder match in front of an empty arena, but NXT, for lighting, uses a darkened crowd always. Plus, they shoot a tighter shot than WWE does on the ring. So I was able to enjoy this match and not have any type of distraction that there was nothing going on. Not to mention there's technically eight people at ringside, so there's plenty of noise and voices being heard. It, it really helped work this match better. The girls in this match worked super hard. Now, I was worried that these girls were going to get very hurt, though. With NXT, they always seem to go a little further than the WWE does, and the NXT girls are always out to try and steal the show. Now, there were a lot of spots with each other pulling each other off the ladders, right to the mat. Now, I'm kind of concerned for people like Tegan Knox. Tegan Knox has had double knee uh, surgeries, and I don't know how well that's going to suit her. But we will continue with this match. Knox did go through a gimmicked ladder, draped across the apron to the barricade, which is something the WWE feels the need to do almost every ladder match anymore. Uh, hopefully she's okay from that. They haven't said that she's not, but it was still a pretty nasty spot. Raquel Gonzalez ends up getting back into the ring and for no reason dumps the ladder with Io Shirai over. Io, however, saves the spot, bounces off the top rope, hits a beautiful splash onto the rest of the girls on the outside of the ring. Now, right after this match, they hit a spot which I assumed was going to be the finisher before this match even happened. Raquel Gonzalez puts Dakota Kai on her shoulders and carries her up the ladder, which I thought was going to be the win. Uh, but instead, this gets interrupted by Mia Yim, and these two started brawling, and Tegan Knox helped Mia Yim powerbomb Gonzalez through a table to the outside to now once again take Raquel Gonzalez out of the match. Again... I like that because, as we've seen, she ends up being the muscle for Dakota Kai in every one of her matches. Cool spot earlier in the match where Mia Yim took a chair to Chelsea Green's knee, which was draped inside of a ladder, which looked pretty bad. But Chelsea continued to sell the knee the rest of the match. She goes to climb the ladder and says that she just can't. So naturally, Robert Stone climbs the ladder on the other side and reaches over and starts pulling her up. I was a fan of this because it's just different. 
he was leaning over, pulling the girl up, and it, it worked. Well, of course, until they both get dumped off by Io Shirai. And at this point, Io Shirai climbs the ladder and wins the match. So we're going to be seeing Charlotte Flair versus Io Shirai for the NXT Women's Championship. If they give this match, whenever it happens sometime, I think they will have a great match. Charlotte, of course, will win that match because I don't see her dropping the belt to anyone but Rhea Ripley eventually. So when that happens in due time, I'm assuming sometime around SummerSlam, you'll see that match with Rhea and Charlotte. But I think we'll get Charlotte and EO in the next couple of weeks. And I think that with the fact that they're going only a handful of matches per show, these two will get 20, 25 minutes and it'll be a great match. Next up, Rinku and Sarav Indu share in their debut versus Everrise, who I've never heard of. So here's what's wrong with this match. It went four minutes and 40 seconds. I don't care if their job was to destroy these two guys. It went on way too long. Don't give everyone what these guys can do, especially because they're still pretty green. Make it a quick kill and throw them out there every week to just do the same. Run through another team each week. Eventually, we'll get the time where they'll have to have a longer match against a better-known team, and then they gotta put some time in, but I'm sure the more established guys will help carry them a little bit more. I thought that this was way longer than it should have been. They need to go back and watch some old Superstars matches from the 80s and figure out what they should be doing with a brand new tag team. Moving on to what ended up being our main event. Tommaso Ciampa, Johnny Gargano, one last time. They give these guys the last 55 minutes of this show, which seems like what they would have given them had this actually been on the TakeOver pay-per-view. Johnny and Candice pull up to this undisclosed location, and they get out of the car. Johnny goes to go into the arena, or wherever this undisclosed location was. Candace then hands him a paper bag as she gets in the car and drives away. Now, right here, I thought this was just going to be a prelude to the match, but no. We go into the arena, and Triple H is sitting in the corner of the ring, waiting on both of these two to get in there. There's cinematic music playing underneath, and ironically, Gargano and Ciampa both arrive at the same time, but enter from different ends of the building. Triple H tells them this started in the ring, and it will end in this ring, and he puts down that chair that he was sitting in, and he leaves. So now we have the culmination of a three-year feud with two guys not even in the prime of their career being shot like a movie. I was not into the idea of that at all. I guess all three brands this week needed to have their own cinematic view on a main event. But unlike the other two, this one actually starts and ends in the ring. Spoiler on that. Not to mention it has a referee. As you'd expect, there's tons of brawling back and forth between these two. Champa does the bully race spot right away and cuts the ring under ropes to hold the canvas and the pads down and expose just the bare boards that are underneath of those in the ring. But before he gets to do anything with it, Johnny Gargano leaves the building and Champa has to chase. Well, this is where Johnny now takes the advantage once again. Champa climbs to the top of a Performance Center box truck didn't we just see this a couple nights before this? Seems really weird to me that WWE goes from never having spots on top of trucks to having two on TV or pay-per-view in a matter of four days. At this point, they exchange several blows and kicks on top of this truck, and we go to a break. Now, when we get back from the break, we're off the truck and getting back into the arena. Now, from a reality standpoint, I hated this. Just do something. Have Gargano run away and... Leave leave Ciampa to chase him. Something for me to believe in, as opposed to, all right, we, uh, we're on top of this thing, and uh, in the last three minutes, with no explanation, now we're off. Something had to have happened. Like, there had to have been a reason not one person just jumped off of a truck. I didn't like how this was done at all. Uh, as we talked about in the WrestleMania re review this past Sunday, I'm all for trying different things in wrestling. However, when it's in the ring, I need it to be real. This match was in a ring for the most part, but this was just another Gargano Ciampa match that needed to do as much shit as they possibly could just for the sake of it. The only difference is there's a crowd usually, so they're into it, so they don't care how much these two try to kill each other, kick out of their finishers 80,000 times, and have the match just seemingly go on forever. 
In this situation, there's no one in attendance, so this match just drug on for the sake that they needed to fill up the last 55 minutes of TV time. By this point, we're in the very last segment of the match, probably around 9.50 and about 45 minutes into this match, and we get a ref bump in the ring. Yes, a ref bump in a fucking empty arena match. An empty arena movie match for that sake. What the actual fuck? At this point, Ciampa hits a draping DDT on Gargano onto the exposed boards. And that at least hit me, and it came back to me that that was an actual finish of one of their takeover matches some months back. Uh, So I'm okay with the nice callback there. It would have maybe have helped to have Mauro Ranallo call this match uh, because he was back. I forgot to mention that. Mauro did make his return this week and announced the other matches. This last 55 minutes was silent. There was no announcing on this, and I felt that it really needed it. It it needed it bad, as a matter of fact. So if you would have had Morrow on the call for this, I feel it would have been a lot less hokey to me. Uh, At this point, Candice LeRae shows back up. She's in the ring, she's crying, and she's distraught. Her husband and her husband's former best friend are both down on the mat after beating the holy hell out of each other. She tells them to stop. Both men now get to their feet. She tells Champa that she hates her husband. And she tells him to go ahead and hit Gargano. At this point, Ciampa stands there and doesn't do anything. Candice LeRae looks at him, goes, I don't give a shit, and kicks her husband right in the balls. So now AEW has gotten shit to seem okay as the new wrestling word, so we've now heard it on about every wrestling show the last six months. I mean, I use a lot of four-letter words. It just seems strange that everybody's now on the shit bandwagon as it pertains to wrestling. Either way, Candice LeRae kicks her husband in the balls. Now, this match, if you call it, is still ongoing. At this point, Candice LeRae leaves. Ciampa gets down and shows sympathy for Johnny Gargano, telling him that he's sorry. At this point, Ciampa gets back to his feet, and wouldn't you know, from behind, Candice LeRae comes back into the ring in the blind side and kicks Ciampa right in the balls. And now here's where we get the reveal. Johnny Gargano pulls out a fucking cup. Yes, a cup that an athlete would wear was what was in that paper bag. And at this point, Johnny Gargano gets the win. Johnny and Candace leave in the same car that they arrived to start this in, and that's where we end. Now, as they're walking out of the building, what do I notice? That there's a car intentionally in this shot with the lights on that appears to be Killer Cross and Scarlet Bordeaux that they quickly show again as the car that Johnny and Candace are in is leaving, but you don't ever get a close-up. But from the features that you can make out, it was obvious that it was those two. So it leaves the only question of, knowing that these two are signed, they have to be debuting soon, and I guess they're going to work it right into a feud with Gargano and Candace LeRae. So like I said, this show uh, as a whole was the best of times and the worst of times as a whole. It was a rough night altogether for Wednesday Night Wrestling this week. Ratings-wise, NXT defeated AEW this week with 693,000 viewers to 692,000 viewers, which is only the second time NXT's won, but these numbers aren't good. They're not good at all. Uh, AEW's only had two times where they've pretty much had under 700,000 viewers, and it was also the time that NXT defeated them, which was Thanksgiving Eve. We'll see what AEW has coming out of next week when they present that world title match between John Moxley and Jake Hager. And finally, this week, we're going to talk about SmackDown from this past Friday night. Now, it was difficult for me to watch this show as my DVR didn't record it. Now, I took that as a sign of maybe I don't actually need to watch this show. But then when I woke up Sunday morning, it was there. So I felt that it was my job to now watch the show and tell you the good and the bad from this show. We open the show with Braun Strowman, the new Universal Champion, comes out to the ring and states that he got rid of Goldberg for good. Shinsuke Nakamura comes out at this point, and that is where this segment instantly went south. Nakamura tries to go back and forth in a promo with Braun Strowman, And now I immediately see why they gave him Sami Zayn as a mouthpiece. The man cannot cut a convincing promo. He's awkward in how he does. He is meant for the ring, not meant for the microphone. But these two are set for a match later tonight 
on SmackDown in our main event. We start off our first match with Alexa Bliss and Nikki Cross defending the tag titles in a WrestleMania rematch against the Kabuki Warriors. Now, one week ago, they kicked off WrestleMania with a very good match. I, I, I enjoyed that match. This match was pretty similar to that match, but just not put together as well. And it was probably because of the magic of being able to pre-tape the things and you know make sure that it was as tight of a match as it needed to be. Now, this match, like I said, nothing to call home about. Alexa Bliss hit a twisted bliss from the top rope to the outside on both Kabuki Warriors. That was a pretty cool spot. And unlike WrestleMania, we have the opposite finish. This time, Nikki Cross gets the hot tag from Alexa Bliss, hits a twisting neckbreaker for the win. This match definitely got better near the end, so it wasn't a full waste of my time. In two weeks, they announced that we are going to get Triple H's 25th anniversary celebration. Now, this, in my opinion, would be just an excellent night to just play his greatest matches edited down for the entire show. Easy way to get content out there, and they don't have to worry about putting anybody in an arena. Just my two cents. At this point, we get another Dirt Sheet segment with The Miz and Morrison, which after 10 minutes ended... Uh, resulting that we're going to see The Miz defending the tag titles next week in a triple threat against Jey Uso and Big E. So a reverse of what the match was at WrestleMania in a ladder match. Thankfully, this match, they're leaving out the ladders. Let me say I've been a fan of John Morrison for years, but is it me or is this guy just bad on the mic? Has he always been this bad or awkward? Miz, love him or hate him, has crazy amounts of charisma, and can drive home a promo in his sleep. But Morrison, uh, pretty cringeworthy every week when these two are on the mic together. I need to see more of Miz on the mic and less of Morrison. Lucha House Party at this point versus the Forgotten Sons, who are now officially caught up from the NXT to SmackDown brand. Now, I was never a huge fan of the Forgotten Sons because they've never been given a real spotlight in NXT. They formed the team over a year ago at this point, but I guess the one positive is is that I feel that most people that have prominent roles in NXT seem to fluster once they're called up to the main roster. And you can look at people like Neville, Bo Dallas. Those two were the NXT champion, and they were pretty much glorified jobbers except for Neville when they finally gave him that heel turn. And then you look at the, a team like the Ascension, who were NXT Tag Team Champions for almost a year, and all they did was job when they came up there. But then you look at people like Alexa, Alexa Bliss. Alexa Bliss never really had any spotlight. Her spotlight was when she was the manager of Blake and Murphy. And Lacey Evans, the same thing. She really didn't have much TV time, but once they were brought up, they became main storyline people. They got a prominent role because of what they can do on a microphone and in the ring. It's just certain things, but I feel that when the crowd gets them over in NXT and they have an expectation, it doesn't usually end well in the main roster. As for the Forgotten Sons, Cutler has been around for several years, as well as Wesley Blake. Like I mentioned earlier, Blake and Murphy. We know that Murphy finally made it up to the main roster, but the real star out of that team was indeed Alexa Bliss. But for this match, it was what you'd imagine a dominant debut should be. NXT should have taken note of this as a dominant debut for the Forgotten Sons in a match that, you know, was as long as it needed to be to get these guys over. We now go to a backstage segment with Alexa and Nikki Cross. Nikki says that she feels that those two are undefeatable. Enter stage left of Carmella and Dana Brooke, who challenge the two for a women's tag team title match, and they accept. I find this interesting because two weeks ago they pulled Dana Brooke because she was sick and told her to quarantine for 14 days, which she apparently did, so now she's already back. As I stated earlier in the news, Corey Graves and Carmella apparently have tested positive for COVID-19, and Corey Graves and Carmella were both on this broadcast. So who else has been affected by this potentially? This is just a mess to me. Uh, next week, we're going to see Tamina versus Sasha Banks. If Tamina wins, she gets a title shot at Bailey and the... SmackDown women's title. If there's one thing we know about Tamina, let's just hope that she doesn't get hurt between now and that title match with Bailey. Now, this could go one of two ways. You could use this as Tamina runs through Sasha Banks to get to Bailey, or Sasha wins, and now once again, she has saved Bailey. Another thing to add to their eventual 
feud. So we'll see how that plays out this coming Friday night. In the main event, Braun destroys Shinsuke Nakamura, which I guess was just a placeholder so that we could get to the Firefly Funhouse with Bray Wyatt. Now, this was something that we discussed many times now, that you back yourself in a corner if you're the WWE when you put the title on Bray Wyatt in the first place. And now that you got the title off of him, it almost seems like you're going to try and put it back on him. You want Braun to be the monster here that you've built him to be all these years, but now I guess that means he's got to beat Bray Wyatt, which would then kill Bray because then he'd lose his last two title matches. Not a good scenario they've put themselves into. However, I like how they built this around the history of the Wyatt family and that, yeah, remember, there was one point where they brought Braun Strowman in as a member of the Wyatt family and quote unquote, Braun turned his back on Bray several years back. At this point, Braun would not say that he's sorry for that and isn't afraid to let him in. So we'll see how this progresses going forward. I do not see how this ends well for either person. At this point, do you already take the belt off of Braun Strowman after there's been countless times where they've not pulled the trigger on making him champion, and now that you've made him champion, just have him lose the belt back to The Fiend? Or do you have The Fiend lose here and really kill The Fiend? I guess you could go that Bray Wyatt perhaps will be the one that challenges, but that has yet to be confirmed. So that's it for this week's edition of Power Bombs and Potables. Again, make sure to follow us on Twitter at PowerBombsPPN. We're trying to give you as much content through that as we can, as well this podcast drops every single Monday morning so that you get a full recap before we start the wrestling week over once again. Make sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and we appreciate you downloading and listening to this week's episode of Power Bombs and Potables. I'll talk to you next week. <laughs>